Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Friday, so let's do this. We're looking at... um. What is this? Parshas Baloshcha. Um, give a shout out to a friend of mine in Shul, Jonathan Marvin, who at the end of Shul today said, I want to call your attention to a Meshachachma, which I just had time to glance at. It looked very interesting in this week's Parsha because he knows I'm always into history things, and there seems to be a certain construction of history that Meshachachma is offering in connection with the story of the Pesach Sheni, which I'm sure you all know is in this week's Parsha. The people couldn't offer the original Pesach, and they said, what about uh, this one, you know, Loma Nigara, why should we not count it? And it looks like he has a long essay, I don't have time to go through it in detail, uh, in which he tries to give the history of the carbon Pesach, and how it's like an anti-idolatry type thing, so you find in history, you know, whatever the famous kings like Chizkyo or Yoshio, or people like that, uh, were on an anti-Avodazar campaign, and the Jewish people were coming out of that, uh, these are famous stories. Well, Yoshio is famous because in the Book of Malachim. Chizki is less famous because in the Book of Devarim. But these are uh, two well-known details and uh, uh, stories. And he wants to connect it with a religious revival. And uh, maybe the people in the desert also. In the 40th year after the death of Moshe, they offer one which is very shortly after the challenge of the Baal Peor. Uh, anyway, just take a look at it. That's not what I want to talk about. But since he mentioned it to me, that's by Jonathan Marvin, so I just wanted to put it out there for you who are Mesha Chachma um, freaks. Now, um, me, myself, and I, whenever I come to Parshat Baloshcha, uh, I'm always reminded of the uh, famous word of uh, Jonas Neibschitz, which is, uh, I find always very interesting. I'm a big fan, I think I'm sure I must have mentioned here somewhere other in the podcast, I'm a big fan of the writings of Yonas and Apeshitz. This has nothing to do with the Emden Apeshitz controversy. Put that to the side. That's a separate parsha. I'll talk about that or not <laughs> on another occasion. But putting all that aside, if you just look at the uh, Svarim, especially the uh, Yaris Tvash, which is the collection of sermons, I guess, if you want to call them that, of Rabbi Yonas and Apeshitz, uh, I always find they remarkable in many respects, even though completely not the style of today, but who cares? And... One of and and I always like when they're surprising, which they are from time to time. And here's one. Uh, in this week's parsha, as you know, it says Balos Chasaneris. When you light the candles, make sure Amul Pneam Nari Yosheva Saneris. I think everybody's familiar with this. That uh, how's, you're talking about the menorah in the Mishkan in the base of Mingdush. Menorah has seven uh, uh, branches, right? Right, and uh, it's three, three, and one. Basically means that if you look at pictures, now they showed you, you can look in an art school book or somewhere, they have diagrams of the menorah, you go online, and you'll see the wicks, you know, the, the, the actual burning wicks in the temple menorah. So it's They're all supposed to be facing towards the middle candle. So if you look at a picture, you'll see the three on the left of the middle uh, branch, the wicks are placed, they're all big bowls, each one of the seven branches is a big bowl at the top full of oil, but where, it's, there's a lot of places to put the wicks, so you put one facing the middle one, 
the Nair Maravi, as they call it, the middle candle. So the three on the left, you'll put the wicks facing towards the right, in other words, towards the center, and the three on the right, you put towards the left, facing the center. That's the famous image. Every homiletician, every drusha guy, you know, for a long time, for centuries, has always made a big deal out of all that, and many of them refer to it within the context of subordination, and uh, none better than the Yaris in my opinion, which is all I can ever share with you here, in my opinion. And he has a very interesting drusha, because the understanding is a fascinating guy. Listen. Like I said before, put the Sabatinism and all that put aside, that's a separate discussion. Putting all that aside, uh, he was a remarkable individual. If what they say about him is true, he's the most charismatic Russian Shiva in history. I'm not saying that if I, by hyperbole, if it's true, because he lived in Prague for most of his life, or a lot of his life, not most of his life, but a lot of his life, uh, in the 1700s, early 1700s. And uh, while he was in Prague for a couple decades, he ran his own yeshiva, among other things. He wasn't the Rav. He had fights with the Rav. That's what a Rosh Hashiva does. He fights with the Rav in the old days uh, over halacha questions and whatever else. There are some famous examples of that. But um, one of the things they do is they run the private yeshiva. This is the old days. There was no dormitory, no no uh, dining room and that sort of thing. In the 1700s, it's Pasva Melech Tocha, baby. You know, you go somewhere and you uh, can you walk there even if Prague was a couple hundred miles away, and because uh, you want to learn under Yosef and the food, I don't know how they'll you know, eat by somebody's house or something like that, or not, and sleep, you'll either find a bed or sleep on the floor. That's how it went. And, uh, you know, if you have shoes, it's good. If you don't have shoes, it's also good. It's the old days. Now, a lot of these kids, obviously, came from families that what we call today middle class, so they at least could have their shoes and maybe some kind of a bed and something, but it's no, no lap of luxury. They say he had 20,000 students during the course of his teaching career, which is unbelievable. When I say unbelievable, it's literally not believable. Because 20,000 students, even if he taught for 40 years, which is around the time he taught. So what does that come out to? Something like 500 new students every year? Nobody in the world has that. You know, I'm from there is a Rabbi Kalevsky, for example, had the Chorna Baruch had, you know, he had uh, taught for, for 50 years. He didn't have no <laughs> 500 new students every year, you know. Yeah, 20, 30, 40 students, whatever. Uh, so I don't know what to do with that number because you ordinarily you say it's just a crazy exaggeration. But I remember his great opponent, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, once wrote in, in his many, many <laughs> writings on Yonis uh, Ames. He said, I'm not impressed with your 20,000 lousy students either. Why didn't he say it's a lie? You don't have that many. You're just putting it out. Sounds like he bought into it also. So if it wasn't 20,000... Say it was uh, 2,000, 5,000, you know, still a gigantic number, gigantic number. And especially for the world of old, you know, the, the ghettos weren't that big. So whatever you want to do, he's an unbelievably charismatic person because people went from all over Europe to have the opportunity to study with him and he formed relations with them. And there's a bunch of stories about this. I'm not going to go into that right now. Time precludes. But uh, in the course of all this, uh, he was an unbelievable orator. Now, uh, he used to give these speeches, clearly, that are recorded in the Yaris Devash, you know, were written down later, whatever. These speeches must have been five, six hours. Uh, and not, you know, anybody can speak five, six, four hours. What I've given four-hour talks on Shabbos Agadol or something like that. But, uh, like, a lot of them. And uh, they're all over the place. 
They're uh, unbelievably, in my opinion, a brilliant mixture of Agarato and Halacha and Musser and, oh my goodness, every subject, a little bit of Kabbalah here and there. He makes it together like a master chef. So as you see, I'm a fan of the Yaris Dvash and the writings of Yonis and especially the homiletics. Even though some of the stuff is a little bit far-fetched, but it doesn't matter. When you enter into Jewish land, you know, abandon all, uh, you know, other uh, notions. Okay, now, having said that, here's a person who's super from, that was his reputation, all the students around him learning 24-7. I mean, there are stories about him, you know, falling asleep, learning in the middle of the snow, and then being covered up like a snowman, you know. There are many stories like that. What does man do for a living? So you say, well, the Rosh Hashiva, you know, he gets money from here, there, and the other. I'll tell you something funny. I once did some research on this, and I have a friend here in Hopkins who's a, who's a, you know, an ape, it's a realia freak, shall we say, a professor. And uh, he was a lawyer, believe it or not. He was an attorney. Now, not exactly an attorney like Evan Merrick on Baltimore, but you know and I know, and many of you listening to this must know, that in some countries they have different types of lawyers. For example, in England they have the barristers versus the other one. What was it? Uh, barristers versus the other kind of lawyer. And um, solicitors, that's the barristers and solicitors. You know, one litigates and one does this and then the other. So in Germany, he was in Prague, so that was part of the Holy Roman Empire, which is part of Germany at that time, Habsburg Empire. Uh, they had, you know, four or five different types of lawyers. He was one particular type of lawyer. I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, it had to do with, with arranging import and export business things. So it's like really freaky that he would have a law practice on side, but that's how the guy made a living. Uh, you'll see why I'm saying that. I don't know how, but he also picked up some secular education here and there. Now, here comes the thing. When he is describing in one of his speeches, in the second half, Chalik Beis of the Yaroslavaj, he goes like this. The seven Neros, homiletically, of course, are understood as the seven Chachmas, or what we would call today secular studies. The Torah itself mandates that you master secular studies, at least a number of them, simply because the laws of the Torah are predicated on a certain amount of scientific knowledge. Now, remember what I said, scientific knowledge, not humanities, not philosophy, not French literature or any kind of stuff, but we, what you and I would call more or less the hard sciences, things like that. And he says over here, it's really uh, wonderful, that the seven branches in the Kabbalah represent the Sheva Chachmas, the seven Chachmas, which is another way of saying um, the seven, uh, it's a euphemism for the secular studies, right? And near Maravi Chachmas Torasenu, and the middle uh, candle is the Torah. And as long as they're facing towards the Torah, no, as long as they're subordinate, as long as you use them for the purpose of the Torah, then the Torah wants that. God, God desires that. And he goes on to say, "Kulam Srichen LeTorasenu Kasher Harachti Bezevchi Barti Sefer Miuchad." I wrote a book on it. Unfortunately, my friends, I don't think this book has survived. If if he wrote it, uh, unless he was planning to, or something like that. And he goes on to say, All the sciences out there are like uh, perfumes and or um, uh, dainties, but they're necessary for the Torah. He means that literally. It's not some Sam Smith or speech. He means that literally. There are laws in the Torah which you have to know your algebra, uh, your geometry, and things like that, because how do you measure the distances the Torah mandates you measure for um, figuring out the Ari Halavim, you know, the, the areas around the cities of the Levim, the Torah says you have to do Alpayim Amo in different directions. Or, as he puts it, when you have an Egla Rufa case, 
and you don't know which town was closer to the dead body, and therefore you have to be able to measure the, the town and using, again, uh, uh, mathematical principles. Achochmas hamishkalos, which is mechanics. He says you need, Bazin has to know that um, in order to judge whether or not, uh, what's the right word, if they're cheating on the weights and measures. Man, how are you supposed to know that unless you master the scientific principles behind that? Uh, so notice God desires at least Bazin be familiar with the amount of knowledge necessary to judge the weight and measures. Chochmas uh, optics. You have to master optics, he says, in order to be able, this is cute, in order to be able to tell the um, Avodah Zarah phonies out there, which he's convinced they do most of their magic through sleight of hand and optical illusion, and therefore uh, a Tamachacham, a basin, has to be able to master the principles of optical illusion, or optics, which is a science, of course, in order to be able to find out these phonies. So if the Torah says one of the jobs of a Jew and of the basin is to find out the Avodah Zarah phonies, then obviously they say you better learn the science of optics. They can, uh, you know, pull the wool over your eyes. And a lot of religions, he said, have been founded by sleight of hand and things like that. Okay? And uh, he goes on at length about that. It's a long uh, speech, but I find it absolutely fascinating. Uh, and uh, after going through all this religious funny business, that's what we call today astronomy. How can you run a Jewish calendar with the witnesses and all the rest of it? without mastering the basics of astronomy. Now, which yeshiva is teaching astronomy over here, right? But again, it's not some extra term derech art. It's intrinsic. You can't have a calendar without understanding the principle of astronomy. As we all know, the Jewish calendar used to be on witnesses. Now it's not. Even when it was on the Adem, it wasn't really on the Adem. It was, it's 99% astronomy, 1% Adem. You know, if they come after 29 days and say, we saw the moon last night, okay. But uh, believe you me, the basin has the power. To, uh, Gemara talks about it in Rosh The basin has the power to hold or fold it. And, you know, if, if there have been too many months in which are chaser, the uh, basin will say, yes, we ain't accepting nobody this month because we need to balance it out with, with months that are moly for astronomical reasons. If witnesses don't come to that one night, they're not going to say, we're going to wait for witnesses to come next two weeks. Can't have a month of 32 days or 33 days. That'll violate the principles of astronomy. So you must know astronomy if, order, if you want to run a calendar. And how can you keep Shabbos and Yantav if you don't know when the calendar is? Chachmas <laughs> Atolda, this is cute, the, uh, what we would call today um, astrology, which to him was a science. It's absolutely necessary, you know, in order to be able to uh, find out the phony astrologers. Chachmas Ateva, which he would call natural science, what you and I call regular science today, uh, does Natura require that you know Demei Nida, the different types of blood with Hilchas Nida? Uh, doesn't the Torah require that you know various uh, things, you know, about halachas, about shfir v'shilyob, the tumor questions, having to do with embryonic sacs and, uh, you know, other baby things connected and pregnancy issues. How is somebody supposed to know that just from being yeshiva, unless you see that God desires that the basin or the Talmud Chacham masters these elements of anatomy. Chacham uh, the, what would the uh, grass, what would that be? Botany of some sort or another. You have to know a, a great uh, mastery of botany in order to run the laws of Kilayim. When, you know, how much the uh, plants are yonic, you know, when, when it's sticking over here. You know what I mean? If a grape thing is sticking over into a wheat thing, or wheat thing, thing, grape thing, all those different cases you have in the Mishnah. 
Umatamaterubis and when do you have uh, mixtures between the uh, let's put it this way, when do you have those types of mixtures that we would call a calime and when not? And when is, or what are the proportions in between them? This requires, as you say, an understanding, as he puts it, of, of botanical principles. Right? Uh, it's also cute. The science of cookery, I guess, uh, like a chef. Plato, he said, wrote a book about it. Cooks and uh, pharmacists. Uh, what do you need that for? How do you do the Keturus correctly? How do you do the Menachos correctly? You have to understand the principles as he puts it over here. Like I guess we would call today a certain type of chef. Uh, you go to a chef school of a certain sort. But again, if the Torah has laws of basic English, basic English has laws of Keturus and other sorts of flour things and spice things and mixed with oil and all the rest of it, it requires some knowledge of this field. Chachmas uh, alchemy. I talked about Chachmas atzir benituach. That would be phrenology. Okay, uh, you know, knowing what the face looks like, what the what the uh, fingers and all that looks like, and tell you. Remember, he's a makubel. Michachmas he going to miftah. Wow, you have to know logic and rhetoric, classic uh, disciplines of schools of old. Kol chachmas adiktik v'nam melitza mosam a Navi has to know all this. Uh, you have to know all this in order to be able to express yourself in the proper way. And when you hear someone describe uh, a Navua or something along those lines, either the, uh, and they're, which are obviously they're putting in their own words, are they able to express it in the proper form or are they uh, expressing it in an incorrect way and therefore they're not accurately conveying what they saw? And in general, the types of necessary level of rhetorical elegance that one finds in the Tanakh. And uh, again, the Torah requires you, if you want to be able to appreciate the words of the Nevi'im, the words of the Torah, to have a classical education in Higayon and Mifta, in logic, which means you know how to organize the words in a certain way, and Mifta, which I guess would correspond to uh, to rhetoric, uh, because the Bible can be read in many, many ways. It can be read halachically, that is one way, no question about it. The Bible can also be read Kabbalistically, no question about it. And the Bible can also be read at the literary level. This is Yonas and Angels talking. And that's necessary for a person who wants to master as much of the Torah as he possibly can. That doesn't mean the literary level is the supreme level or anything, not to take away from the other levels, but don't you want to know everything that's possible to know about the Torah? music, musica, okay? And that would give you the mastery of the trop and the accents and the music, and the Shio Shim Nomosilavim, and the principles, perhaps we might say today, that we, we've lost this. You know, what were the principles of the music used in the basic mix? Did they use jazz? No, no. You know, did they use uh, I don't know, this kind of rhythm? They used something. Now, ordinarily, you might say like this, they used whatever they used 2,000 years ago. Three and saying, what do I know? No, no, my friends. Anything that's used in basic mix is Kodesh Kodashim. And Moshe Romano and David Melch, these people under the divine work of Kodesh. And therefore, if they composed a shear uh, of the type that we find in Telem, and, uh, you know, they correspond to so and so many words, or they're, they're written for certain instruments, they're not simply musical, they are musical directions, no question about it. But that's not all they are. Since they're used in such a sacred context, 
there's an unbelievable amount of Chachma involved in them. I happen to remember reading long ago the Talmud of Vilnagon, what was his name? The, you know, the one who wrote Pasa Shulchan. Uh, you know, I went there to Israel later on them from Shklov, the Israel Shklov. And uh, he was in the, what, a disciple of the, the Groh. And uh, he was together with the Vilnagon somewhere along the line when he was older. And he made a great, this is the Vilnagon I'm talking about now. And he made a CM HaTorah. When I'm talking about a CM HaTorah, I don't mean like in Baltimore. I mean, a CM HaTorah. You're talking about the Vilnagon over here. So he finally mastered the whole... What was the hardest thing at the end that took him to the, 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 the highest and th- most difficult thing, according to Yisrael Shkol? Uh Music. Lung was trying to understand the principles behind... The Kabbalistic principles, I suppose, behind the music that was used in the Beis Amigdash and how many instruments there were and why the Levim sung in this way and on that way. And you can't... And Rav Yosef is submitting over here, if the Torah has these kind of things set up, then it means that you have to understand the principles of music. It doesn't necessarily mean the kind of thing you learn, you know, in a, in a Western conservatory today. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But there were some principles of music. It's not just putting a, a couple of sounds together. And uh, that's something you can only use and learn in a music course. Uh, here's a good one, a very controversial one. How are you going to run a basin if you don't understand law? You've got to have a law school degree. Shakur and Yudatzalitz. Burius Cominus, which is a little perversion of the uh, Burius Cominus, you did sell us the, the, whole, the law system of the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> he, put, he writes it in there, which he obviously knew. He was a lawyer, as I just told you before. And what's my point? You have to know the principles of general law. Basin has no principles of general law, like we would say today of a, a basic law school education. To be able precisely to distinguish between those elements unique to Judaism, the Mishpat Elohim, and the Mishpat Bnei Adam, and those uh, 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 principles of general law. Okay? Uh, and as he puts it over here, This is fascinating. Was there a Jewish kingdom long ago? Yes. Or some kind of Jewish commonwealth in the biblical period? Yes. Uh... Did they just run the country at that time according to the Gemara? No. What do you mean when you say that, cats? The answer is, it's not just Baba Kamba Messiah. They had a whole co- a system. They had a government rules. Uh, they had parliament rules. They had taxation rules. They had uh, administration rules. We've lost this, my friends. We have no records left over of how King David ran the kingdom in the, in the government sense. We have no records of how courts operated in the biblical period. We have a little bit. You know, here and there in the Gemara, a little bit. We don't have any kind of running system. Uh, the Gemara is composed long after we lost our, our, our state or independence. Uh, we, we lost contact with the living, uh, you know, tradition of how uh, they, you know, ran, uh, you know, political cases. I don't know, you know, when they were the, the whole kind of Sanhedrin system as talked about in the Gemara. We have little bits and pieces of it left over. And, uh, but long ago, they had a country. And maybe they will one day again. And if they do, you have to know principles of law and administration, as we would say today, in order to be able to take them and use them in the Torah, take away. That doesn't mean you follow the Justinian code exactly, but you have to understand the different law codes and then tweak them for for the Jewish purposes. This is what he means when he says, these are a few examples of what he lays out over here, um, in which he says, as I just pointed out, not that you should go to college, but that, <laughs> but that you have to understand more than just the Gemara in order to operate the Gemara. You have to understand what I would call today uh, sciences 
and uh, certain other disciplines uh, in order for the proper Avishinah You can't make a calendar if you don't know astronomy, you see, for example. So this is a speech that today would be called liberal. I don't think he meant it that way. Maybe he did. It's, it's hard to tell. Um, but it's absolutely fascinating. The trick, of course, is El as long as all the candles are subordinate to the middle candle. Uh, the problem we have nowadays, of course, is the science wants to usurp and take over the position of religion. Uh, because they say the sign, you know, the three candles on both sides say the middle candle doesn't count. But in the Torah's way of putting it together, it's not like that. Uh, to use modern terminology, science has gone crazy in the last hundred years. We've created, uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction and things like that, and uh, well beyond methods, you know, missiles of mass destruction. You have little chemical agents and biological agents. A little bit can wipe out the whole human race, which is counterintuitive because the whole point of science was to advance man and not to create instruments in which it now is possible to wipe out the human race, but that's what we've done. So that shows you what happens when science is untrammeled without any religious or moral, uh, what shall I say, uh, roof over it. On the other hand, we all know what happens when religion is completely divorced from science. That's also not good. You end up with Inquisition, right? Or you end up with some, uh, you know, super religious fanatic totally ignoring the science, and uh, uh, let me use contemporary language. You end up with all this measles junk that we're running around now. Okay? You know, the science doesn't count. So you need the two in tandem. Uh, the menorah, as he puts it, represents knowledge. Because it doesn't represent light. God does not need light, as Hazal put it. But it represents knowledge. The knowledge has to be the three and the three. Thus the, uh, the sciences today, the medical knowledge, all the rest of it. But it has to face, it has to be submerged to the middle, to the moral code and the moral rules uh, left over by the Torah. Isn't that like a very cute uh, kind of uh, exercise in a, in a, in a drasha? Um, I've taken it on the road once or twice, and I think it offers you some food for thought. And with that, I say have a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.